don't ever get used to worship that exalts the name of Jesus. Worship does not begin at 9.30 on Sunday morning at Sherwood. Your worship is 24-7. We bring our worship together at 9.30 at Sherwood on a Sunday morning. And if we've not been worshiping in the week, it's hard to drum something up in the moment. Worship God with your life. We get a wonderful privilege. I praise God for Seth and the team and just all who are involved in worship here. So grateful to God for them using their gifts, their skills, but also knowing their hearts. And that's a huge part of it. There's people who have unbelievable skills, but the heart is not turned towards God. Praise the Lord for hearts and lives in worship. So we are going to tackle a topic this morning that if you have looked at your sermon outline sheet, you might be wondering if you should have shown up at Sherwood this morning. And I promise if we walk through it biblically and prayerfully, it'll be a morning that is specific to every person in the room, every person who is walking or watching online. So just let's start with a little audience participation. So by a quick show of hands, how many of you consider yourselves to be a great judge of character? Let me see those hands. You can spot a fool, a fraud, a faker at 100 yards away, no problem. You go ahead and you can put those down. Whenever you have that particular skill set, you know somebody's character. You, you know their strengths and weaknesses. You know how they like their coffee, and you don't even have to talk to them first. Your skills are just that good. I get it. I, I have the same gift set myself. So quick show of hands. How many of you have ever been wrong about your judgment of somebody else? There we go. There's some honesty in the room. You know those moments where you are really, really wrong. Maybe you've pegged some guy as a womanizer just the first time you ever met him. It was because of how he walked. It was the clothes he was wearing. It was the smile on his face. You're like... He's a player. I can, I can see it from here. And then you find out later he's been happily married 36 years. He does weekend to remember retreats with his wife for like focus on the family. Has three books on the sacredness of marriage. And, but even though, here it is, your initial judgment, initial judgment, initial judgment might not line up with the facts, it's hard to back down after you've already said what you were going to say. So here's what you think in your mind. I'm just early. He's just not been caught yet. <laughs> people are funny, and I use that term loosely. We judge people. We draw conclusions many times without the facts. We make wild accusations about somebody's character based on impressions and feelings and where they are and who they associate with and how they dress. And I do think there is something to be said for the saying, you know, if it looks like a duck and walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. And I love a good duck analogy as much as the next guy. But what I'm talking about is seeing a feather and calling it a duck. I'm talking about total disregard for how the actual person walks and what the person actually says and that matter how the person actually quacks. I'm talking about drawing conclusions without facts. Now, here's the really strange part of that. 
even though most of us, is probably an easy assessment, most of us have made false assessments, snap judgments about somebody else, we get unbelievably upset if somebody does it to us. And we will call them out on it fast. We will say, you don't know me. You don't know my story. You don't know my struggles. You, you don't know what I stand for. You can't judge me. We hate it when people judge us. Years ago, the most recognized verse in the Bible would have likely been John 3.16 by Christians and non-Christians alike. Today, probably one of the most recognized verses in the Bible would actually be Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not, lest you be judged. It doesn't matter if a person is a believer or not. People just tend to know that somewhere in the Bible, it says something about not judging other people. Today, we're going to take another step in our Issues of the Heart series, and we are talking about judgmentalism in a critical spirit. We're taking several weeks in order to address what's referred to as respectable sins. These are the behaviors that Christians often regard as acceptable, even though the Bible is very clear in saying that they are sinful. These are the types of sins that are so prevalent within our culture, prevalent within churches, that we just get used to them. And as a result of that, we ignore them. We tolerate them. So over the last couple of weeks, we have talked about sins of unhealthy desire. And we've talked about covetousness and envy and jealousy, greed and discontentment. Today, we're dealing with sins of unrighteous pride. We're talking about judgmentalism in a critical spirit. Now, we're going to see these particular sins within a story in Jesus's ministry. And sometimes it's helpful to see a sin in a story before we can actually see, oh, that sin is also in my life. And in this story, there is a group of people that they are very, very clear in judging Jesus. They are making snap judgments about who he is and what he stands for and what his character is all about. And in the story, Jesus very clearly calls out their unrighteousness and the pride that is in their heart. Their sin disabled their ability to rightly discern. Did you hear that? Their sin disabled their ability to rightly discern. They didn't see it, though. They thought that they were still in good shape. So they make these accusations about Jesus, and they were wrong. They were unbelievably wrong. They were so incredibly off base. But here's the thing about snap judgments. We don't know what we don't know, but we act like we know something. And here's the problem. When the snap judgment is based in pride, even when we're shown to be wrong, we don't want to back down now. It's pride. It's unrighteousness. It's, it's this feeling of, I know I've got to be right. And even if what I said was wrong or what I believed was wrong, I'm not personally wrong. Pride in unrighteousness undergird judgmentalism in a critical spirit. Snap judgments can assassinate somebody's character. They spread lies, gossip, and rumors. They destroy families and marriages. They divide churches and communities and countries. They inflict incredible damage. And yet we get so used to it, we learn to tolerate the destruction that's around us. 
We're going to work through this story this morning and see how pride and unrighteous judgment are going to distort everything. And as we work through, I'm going to ask you if you would prayerfully reflect upon this one piece. I'm going to have a word of prayer in a moment. Ask God in that moment, where in my life is judgmentalism and a critical spirit destroying relationships, distorting truth, fostering pride, and dishonoring God? If you will honestly pray that prayer, the Spirit of God will honestly give you answers. Now, here's the thing. When the Spirit of God points out sin, there is only one option for the believer. Repent. You might say, well, no, the other option is not repent. That's not an option for the person who says, Jesus is my Lord. That is an option in ignorance. That is not an option in truth. This morning, we're getting into some truths that'll be hard, but the Spirit of God is gloriously gentle and merciful. And praise the Lord, he doesn't point out every fault at the same time. Otherwise, we would not be able to handle it. So when he brings one or two to mind, say, God, I agree. You are right. I am wrong. And by your grace, I repent. I turn from that sin. And I'm asking you to live righteousness through me. Are you all ready for the journey? Hey, that was more amens than I thought. Let's get after this. Turn with me in your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter number 7. We're going to be over in verses 19 through 24. I am speaking this morning on the subject of judgmentalism in a critical spirit. As we read the text, you might think this doesn't actually talk about judgmentalism or a critical spirit. It doesn't sound like it at the very beginning, but at the very end is when you absolutely see those pieces come out. So let's read the text starting in verse number 19. Did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you carries out the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon who seeks to kill you. By the way, the crowd is telling Jesus, you have a demon. You talk about a bad snap judgment that is not in alignment with it. It probably doesn't get any worse than this moment. So Jesus answered them, I did one deed and you all marvel. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise the man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Let's pray. Father, unless your spirit guides us into truth, we will shut down and block out and build barriers against what the word is going to say. Lord, keep our hearts open. May your spirit do surgery in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So throughout the Bible, we are given a significant number of warnings about how sin and hypocrisy and confusion and foolishness will accompany snap judgments and a critical spirit. And when we speak without actually knowing the facts... So here's a few verses on that. Proverbs 18.31, it says, Spouting off before listening to the facts is both shameful and foolish. 
When we just vent, when we spout off, when, when we air out our thoughts and our opinions, but we've not waited to get the facts, God says that is shameful and that's foolish. In James 4.12, it says, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? There is only one ultimate judge, that is God. He has not asked any of us to fill in for him. He is 100% capable of righteously judging. Here's your last verse, Matthew 7, 1 through 5. That's the story that describes the fact that we are to take the log out of our own eye before we try to help our neighbor take the speck out of their eye. And in that particular text, the focus is not, not on the fact that somebody else has faults, but rather we are to deal with our own issues before you talk about dealing with somebody else's. And if we're going to be honest, if all we did was repent of the known sin in our life, that would keep us busy till Jesus comes that we would not have time to judge somebody else. Now, somebody might say, ah, but Paul, did you see what Jesus said in John 7, 24? He said, judge with righteous judgment. That's what I'm doing, Paul. I'm right, therefore it is righteous judgment. Or what about 1 Corinthians 2.15 that says the spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is to be judged by no one. Paul, I'm spiritual. By the, and by the way, we all know Sister Sally is doing it wrong. She's got all sorts of problems in her life, but that's not me. I'm spiritual. I can judge other people. Or what about 1 Corinthians 5.12 and 13? Paul said... For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside, God judges? Somebody might say, all right, Paul, all right, I'll give it to you that maybe I'm not supposed to judge those outside the church, although I've got a couple of thoughts about them too. But if you're in the church, it's game on. Like I'm just obeying scripture if I do this. Remember, the answer's are always in context. So let's walk through those quickly. 1 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul was addressing a church in which there was known sin and nobody was willing to deal with it. There was a man in the church who was sleeping with his dad's wife. And it was known. It, the judgment of God is already pronounced upon that sin. The Apostle Paul was saying, by you not calling it out, you're not doing that guy any favors right there. But rather, the judgment of God has already been pronounced against his actions. You are to call it out. You are to confront that sin. And if the person repents, then they are going to be in right relationship with God. If they don't, he goes as far as to say, remove them from your midst. The Bible takes sin seriously. Also, in 1 Corinthians 2.15, it addresses how unbelievers do not understand the truths of God. The Spirit of God does not indwell them. So in the context there, it is believers understand because the Spirit of God indwells them. An unbeliever doesn't have the Spirit, so they are not to judge another believer. They don't have the same form of reference, the context to be able to speak to that believer's life. And then we have our main text, and this is where we spend the bulk of our time. John 7, 24. Whenever Jesus says, judge with righteous judgment, his statement is clear in context. Now, let me just say from the very beginning, 
there's going to be multiple pieces that we have to just grab it a piece at a time and sit with the piece. And we're going to grab us another piece and another piece. Don't try to figure them all out in advance. At the end, they're all going to come together. But take it one piece at a time. So now let's get into the context of our main, our main section in John 4, or John chapter 7. So the verses that we just read in verses 19 through 24, there is a crowd who is judging Jesus. At the very end of this exchange, Jesus says, do not judge according to appearance. In other words, don't judge by what you see on the outside, or as we would say, don't judge a book by its cover. That's basically what he's saying here. Then he says, but judge with righteous judgment. Now, Jesus is not forbidding discernment. He is forbidding judgmentalism. So for the statements to begin to align and start to make sense, we need to go back one verse and see what he had to say. Verse number 18, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. Did you notice how he and him are both capitalized? Jesus is speaking of himself here. That is, he's saying that he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him why? Because he is seeking the glory of the one who sent him. He's seeking the Father's glory. But they, the crowd, are not speaking the truth, and they are filled with unrighteousness because they are seeking someone else's glory. That's the connection that he is making to begin with. To kind of bring the point home, he now gives them an illustration. This is found in verse 19. He said, did not Moses give you the law and yet none of you carries out the law. Now we recognize in our studies of scripture that the Jews absolutely revered the law of Moses. They wanted to live by the law of Moses. In fact, they were looking for salvation through the law of Moses. According to scripture, no one is saved by the law. The law can show us our sin, it simply cannot remove our sin. No one is saved by keeping the law. Put the reference off to the side, Romans 3, 9 through 20. Galatians 3, 10 and 11, Galatians 5, 3 through 6. But here is Jesus' logic, and again, we've got to take it small piece at a time. Their inability to keep the law revealed their unrighteousness. In other words, they were sinning. They could not keep the perfect law that had been given. His fulfillment of the law revealed his righteousness. He was able to do it. They could not in sin he could in perfection. So here's what he's saying. The unrighteous crowd is now judging the righteous son of God. He's saying, you don't have the ability to do it. You could not keep it yourself, and yet you're trying to point out faults in me. Their unrighteousness had begun to blur their ability to have discernment. Then he asked the question, why do you seek to kill me? Now, when he asked the question, they're bewildered by the question. In fact, the fact that they were so confused lets us know they did not know that the leaders, the Jewish leaders, had plotted to kill Jesus based upon what we find in chapter 5, verse 18. They didn't know that. But that actually illustrates his point even more. He's saying, you're talking like you know something, and you don't even know the facts in this case. But they acted as though they knew the facts. They acted like they knew something. So what's their next response? Well, you have a demon. 
How do you get from here to you have a demon? No, well, tell me more of what you're talking about. No, well, let's go back and assess the situation. There's no, let's take time to process what's happening. They just immediately jump to, you have a demon. Now, that phrase could be taken literally that they might think he has an actual demon. He is possessed by a demon. Or it could be taken figuratively. You are insane. You are crazy. You are out of your mind. But here's the thing. It doesn't matter which way you go with it. This unrighteous crowd is looking at the righteous son of God and saying, you are either demon-possessed or you're crazy and insane one. It doesn't get a whole lot more off the mark than that. So in the section here, later you'll find that their response affirms what Jesus was saying about unrighteousness in their heart. They resented the allegation that they had not been able to keep the law. So then he gives another example of this. you got to hold this example kind of by itself as well. He says in verse 21, I did one deed and you all marvel. Now what this one deed is is actually explained in the next two verses in verses 22 and 23. The deed he's referring to is the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda found over in chapter 5. That one miracle was one that offered sufficient proof that he was who he claimed to be. And that's exactly why he did the miracle. We find that over in chapter 3, verse 2, 536, 731, 916. He was in the process of letting people know by his actions, through his miracles, I am who I claim to be and I have been sent by God the Father. That's the claim. That's the reason behind that particular miracle. He wasn't crazy. He wasn't demon-possessed. He wasn't just a good teacher. He's the son of God who had been sent by the Father. But instead of believing what they saw, are you waiting? Instead of believing what they saw him do, the Jewish leaders decided to plot to kill him. Chapter 5, verse 16. Chapter 5, verse 18. Even though they saw the truth, their mind was already made up before that moment. It wasn't an issue of whether or not he could perform enough miracles to change the mind. Their mind was already made up. He did not fit the mold. They wanted Jesus to conform to their ideas instead of their ideas conforming to the reality of who he was. Now, I just want to encourage you. If you get a chance, go back and read all of this over in chapter 5. We don't have a chance to pull it all out, but I'm going to summarize the key pieces for you. But all of what I'm about to say comes out of John chapter 5. So here's what happened in that story. Jesus healed a man who had been sick for 38 years, but he did this healing on the Sabbath. Whenever the Jewish leaders saw that he healed the man on the Sabbath, they were upset And Jesus defended his right to heal the man because of his equality with God the Father. Chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. They did not believe that he had been sent by God the Father, and they started plotting to kill him. Chapter 5, verse 18. The story illustrates, again, confusion over the Sabbath. Now, I want you to hold this idea for just a moment because now we got to go back and pull in some more context here. While Moses recorded the command of circumcision within the law, circumcision actually predated the law. It goes back to Abraham in the patriarchal period back over in Genesis chapter 17. 
And here's what basically that said. Every Jewish boy on the eighth day was to be circumcised. Now, if the eighth day happened to fall on a Sabbath, they went ahead and circumcised the child anyway. The law stated, however, that they could not work on the Sabbath unless it was necessary to save a life. Exodus chapter 20, verse 10. So Jesus now says in verse 23, if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, a form of physical mutilation of one part of the body, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath, healed the entire person? His example showed, again, the hypocrisy. Why is it okay for you to break the Sabbath customs to circumcise a child, but it's not okay for him to break their Sabbath customs to make an entire man well? Listen, legalism always gives birth to hypocrisy. Always. Not sometimes, always. In legalism... We want to hold somebody else accountable for what we don't hold ourselves accountable for. Verse 24, it says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. His statement points out their lack of moral and theological discernment, as well as their need for both of those things. Harsh judgment that comes from the self-righteous legalism is always unacceptable to God. Matthew 7, 1. But so at the same time is superficial judgment that is based on appearance only. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. So Jesus is urging this crowd to abandon their misconceptions, abandon their snap judgments about him, and rather assess things based on the reality of what they see before him. Change based upon the truth that has been presented. Change the mindset based upon what he has done right before their own eyes. He says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. If there is one big takeaway thought that will apply in every situation, here it is. It's your big truth for this morning, big idea. Discern biblically, judge not. Discern biblically. Judge not. We need moral and theological discernment. We need to rightly evaluate things based upon truth. A part of that is we need to know the word of God well enough to see when people or customs or culture or ideas or government or anything else is not in alignment with God's word. We need to know the truth, but we have to discern biblically. Whatever we're talking about, go back and look at it through scripture. Discern biblically, judge not. Now, what you'll find here is discernment is what not only requires us to know the word of God, but discernment assesses with facts and truth. It flows out of righteousness. It flows out of humility. It comes out of the spirit of God's indwelling believers. Judgmentalism is completely different. Judgmentalism assesses without all the facts and in a way that is not condoned in Scripture. It flows from unrighteous living, a prideful heart, a critical spirit. It looks down its nose upon others. Judgmentalism slanders reputations. It destroys relationships. It dishonors God. We are to discern biblically, judge not. Discern biblically, judge not. Now, I recognize it might be hard to find what the line is between these. Is it judgment or is it discernment? 
So here's how we can see what the line is. I'm going to give you several pieces on both the side of discernment as well as judgmentalism. First, discernment does not believe everything. Somebody's like, if I have to be discerning, does that mean I just have to be gullible? Not according to scripture, you don't. 1 John 4, 1, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are of God. It is good to take the word of God and sit down case by case, situation by situation, and say, does it align with the word? Does it align with the word? If it aligns with the word, praise God for it. If it does not, discern it and know it right up front. Next one, discernment approves what is excellent and leads to purity and righteousness. Philippians 1, 9 and 10. It is my prayer that you, your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. When discernment is happening, it leads to holiness. It leads to righteousness. It leads to purity. It leads to all good things. That's where discernment should be leading somebody down the path of. Here's the next one. Discernment is developed through constant practice. Hebrews 5.14. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have the powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You might think in your life, like, I have horrible discernment. Well, there's hope for that. You might not like the process by which the hope comes, but there's hope for that. What is the, the process? It is constantly going through and discerning good from evil according to the word of God. As that happens, discernment grows more and more over time. The next one, discernment tests everything and holds on to what is good. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, so clear. Test everything, hold fast to what is good. Now, here's the curveball on this. To live the passage means that we actually have to know the standard, which is the word of God. If you are not taking time to study and be in the word and sit in the word and ask the spirit of God to teach you, if you're not in the word, you don't have the filter for discernment. It's now just your best feelings and impressions. We need to be in the word. But here's the other part of that. To also live out the passage means we have to spiritually engage the battle if we're going to test everything. You do know it's it's easier to sit back and act like nothing's wrong. It's, it's easier when people think from the perspective of ignorance is bliss. But listen, we don't live in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. And when our cities and our country are burning to the ground around us, somebody needs to engage it with the word of God and say, what is right? What is wrong? What is true? What is false? We have to be engaged in this. If you're talking about what's best for your family, what's best for your marriage, what's best for your future, you cannot sit idly and say, it'll all just work its way out. It doesn't. Sin always devolves into greater areas of destruction. It never works back to righteousness. What happens? Somebody at some point along the way 
get so fed up with sin and problems and destruction, they get on their face before God and say, if you don't change it, I don't know what the future is going to be. I'm not going to try to bargain my way out of it. I'm not going to explain my way out of it. God, I have been wrong. I have sin in my life. I confess it before you in humility, God. Please do a work in me. When that person is on their face before God, our God meets that person at their greatest point of need. But if we're not there, listen, if we're not there, don't think you can think your way through discernment. Sin and unrighteousness impairs our ability to discern correctly. What do we need? We need truth. We need the word. We need humility. We need to walk in what scripture describes as walking in the spirit. That's how those things are developed. Discern biblically. Judge not. Several thoughts about judgmentalism. Judgmentalism is birthed in unrighteousness. That is our main text where Jesus calls out their unrighteousness. Also, judgmentalism is ripe with hypocrisy. John 7 and Matthew 7. A great way to see if you are discerning or judging is your level of personal repentance. A hypocrite condemns in others what they accept fully in themselves. Are you in a constant state of going before God, taking his word and say, God, show me where the sin is at in my life. If we do that, we are living in a state of humility and repentance. Here's the next one. Judgmentalism looks on the outside it assesses without all the facts, John 7, 24. Jesus tells us, stop judging by external categories, mere appearances. Their idea of Jesus was built on misconceptions and erroneous conclusions. They judged on the basis of what seems, not on the basis of what is. That is why it's so important that when we are in difficult moments, we come in in a spirit of humility and we keep the room open for God to be able to correct us if our assessment is wrong. And at the same time, to be able to step into the flow of his spirit if he says, this is what I would have for you. Amen. There's an old statement that goes like this. The devil is in the details. Satan delights in stealing, killing, and destroying. And a part of his strategy is hiding the details while emphasizing our hurts. You need to hear that again. He will hide the details while emphasizing our hurts. Why is that important? Because when you're hurting, you just want to get away. When you're hurting, you don't want to ask the next level of questions. When you're hurting, you don't want to wait to hear truth. You just want peace. Don't let the hurt keep you from the truth. The truth may either affirm your suspicions or the truth might blow it up and it'll set you free. One way or the other, truth needs to be seen. Here's the last of that category. Judgmentalism condemns yourself. Romans 2.1, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. When we judge others, we are actually hurting ourselves. 
So here's the, the key idea again. Discern biblically, judge not. Discern biblically, judge not. Discernment leads to peace. Judgment leads to problems. Discernment protects you. Judgment condemns you. Discernment is a gift. Judgmentalism is a sin. Now, as we leave, I have written out all of these thoughts of reflection. The reason I did that is because I want you to have something you can take home. It could be two years from now, you're sitting with God, and you've got your sermon outline sheet in front of you, and you've still got the exact list of questions to go over. But how do you personally assess this? And it has to be something that is the person in the Spirit of God in those quiet moments of your life that you are asking God to reveal these things. How do you know if there is judgmentalism or critical spirit? Well, here's what you see. First of those is what gets under my skin. Who do I not like and what bothers me? Where can I recognize a pattern of repeated anger, frustration, and agitation? Where am I quickly forming opinions? Where am I so convinced that I am right that I am not willing to wait for the facts? Where does my anger rise when challenged? By the way, when you know truth, even when it's challenged, there's a calmness. If you're not sure, notice how quickly your anger rises when you feel like somebody's challenging you. Second question, how can I walk in truth and righteousness? Here's a couple of questions to ask of that. Am I spending time with God daily in his word? Am I taking time to ask God to reveal any sin that's in my life? Am I living in a state of repentance? Have I taken the time to study both sides, to learn key facts and understand biblical truth in context? Do I have a heart to learn or have I already made up my mind? If truth and the leading of the Holy Spirit revealed that I was wrong, would I repent and seek forgiveness from others? Next one, how do I develop discernment and search in humility? Here's some questions for that. Do I think I've figured it out, which is pride, or am I leaving room for God to correct me? That's humility. Am I seeking a biblical understanding of a topic? When I enter a conversation, do I take the humble path of seeking to understand, giving the benefit of the doubt, are recognizing that I may be wrong. Instead of looking for everything that's wrong, have I stopped and asked God to show me what is right in my areas of frustration? When judgmentalism and a critical spirit are not recognized and brought in submission before God, you will find that it leads to pride, hypocrisy, a skewed perspective, living in anger, slander of others, divided relationships, unrighteous behavior. This sin will rob us of joy. It'll destroy everything it touches. It will lead to pessimism, cynicism, depression, and fear. And here's the thing. It will cause us to look at the worst in others while feeling self-righteous in the actions of ourselves. I ask you at the very beginning to pray and ask God, where in my life is judgmentalism and a critical spirit distorting truth 
destroying relationships, fostering pride, and dishonoring God. If at any point in this message, God has brought some areas to mind, I cannot encourage you enough. Bring those to God in repentance and prayer. Do not hold on to the very things that Jesus died to free us from. When you hold on to it, here's what happens. Sometimes God has to take you to the woodshed over and over and over till your grip loosens on the very thing that you're holding on to. There is nothing more gracious than God addressing sin in mercy and truth between you and him and giving you an opportunity to repent of it and walk in the freedom that we have in Christ. So I'm going to encourage you, bow for just a moment of prayer. Heads bowed, eyes closed. This is definitely going to be one of those more serious messages that you'll ever hear. I cannot encourage you enough to not take this moment lightly. If the Spirit of God is convicting you of something in your life, everybody around you doesn't have to know what's going on. If, if God is convicting you of whatever that is, take it to him right now. It might be that the area that you're struggling with has nothing to do with judgmentalism or a critical spirit. It might be something else that wasn't even the focus of the message, and God brought it to mind so clear this morning saying, that's one you need to repent of. Do not walk out of the room. Do not turn off the video until you've taken time to deal with that with God. I'm going to encourage you to be in a spirit of prayer. There are already people that are at the altar right now. As the music begins to play, there's going to be a time where, where we're singing over you. If you're in a place, a good place with God and want to sing, that's great. But don't feel like you have to sing in a moment that God's saying, I want you to do business with me. So wherever you might be, I'll have a word of prayer and then we're going to open up the full time of invitation. Just, I encourage you, respond as the Spirit of God leads you. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, God, may we deal with the sins that have so entangled and gripped our hearts that God, apart from you extracting it, piece by painful piece, it's never going to leave. Lord, may we be reminded of what Proverbs 4 tells us, that we are to guard our hearts above all else, for from it determines the course of our life. Our life, our future, is dependent upon what's taking place in the heart right now. So God, would you do a work that only you can do? God, may we step out of the way and just let you do what only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing. The altar is open. Pastors are here. Just respond as the Spirit of God prompts you.